We are in week four of five of this series that we're going through that we're calling Following Jesus, in which we are examining the ways in which Jesus made disciples, in which Jesus went about this task of disciple-making, knowing that he has given us that same task, and that if we are to be disciples, and we are to be followers, and we are to be imitators of him, that if we are to make disciples, then maybe we need to be making disciples the way Jesus made disciples. You know, discipleship is, is, an important, is an important thing. It's a really important thing. I think many of the problems that we're facing in, in society and in the church today is because at some point we let go of discipleship. And there are all sorts of people that can point to all sorts of moments in time when that happened. And I don't know what the answer is. Because I wasn't alive for it. And I don't terribly have a strong opinion about it. We were watching, yesterday, we were watching a series of documentaries on uh, Disney Plus about the Imagineers. So these are the artists and engineers and the people who make the Disney magic happen in the parks. But one of the things they kept talking about is they kept talking about Walt. And they kept talking about like his view And his view was that you didn't sit and dwell on the past, that you constantly looked forward. And so they played a little bit of an interview in which he's talking about, you know, when he finished a film, it was done. You know, once he sent Snow White and the Seven Dwarves off to Technicolor for them to do their thing, his work was was done on the film, and he was moving on to the next thing. Now, I will tell you, I'm not that mature. Because if I had done, if I had been responsible for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, man, I would have spent the rest of my life going, hey, guess what? (laughs) I'm responsible for Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. Hey, guess what? I made a movie so good, they had to make seven miniature Oscars to give to me. You know that story, right? When Snow White and the Seven Dwarves won, they got a full-size Oscar and seven dwarf-sized Oscars. But in the parks, he said he was able to do this thing. He was able to keep moving. It was this idea of plussing, right? The parks are never done. Disneyland's celebrated its 60th anniversary, and they're not done yet. The 50th anniversary of Disney World, of Magic Kingdom, will will kick off in October, and it's not done yet. And this, this vision of Walt, of never being done, of always striving forward, of never looking to the past, has infected Disney and the culture in that mega corporation. And the moments when they faltered. They faltered some in the 70s after Walt's death. They faltered again a little in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. It was when they forgot who they were. And when they forgot that vision of always looking forward. So as we think about the ways maybe in which we have messed things up, We should think about not how did we get here, 
but how do we get to where we need to go? Now, sometimes you've got to look at where you are and do an honest assessment, right? To figure out where, how you need to get to where you need to go. But, but there's a difference between an honest assessment and dwelling on the failures or the glories of the past. As I mentioned, this, this young man in Atlanta... He was a member of a Baptist church. He was a member of a first Baptist church. In fact, I would bet that any one of us could be picked up this morning and go to that church on any given Sunday, and we would probably feel relatively at home. He had grown up in the youth group. His testimony was was featured on their website. And yet somewhere, the discipleship culture failed him, and therefore failed the world. Our discipleship culture is, is, is broken. And we need to go back, and we need to go back to Scripture, and we need to see what Jesus did, and we need to move forward. And so over the last few weeks, What we've seen is that Jesus starts all of his relationships. He grounds all of his relationships, first and foremost, in his relationship with the Father. That Jesus takes the time to to go up to the mountain and spend time with God. And let me offer that if God the Son has to spend time with God, you the creature have to spend time with God. And then we moved into this, how Jesus interacted with with the crowd, with the masses. And that he did did the preaching and teaching thing, right? I mean, that he would go into the synagogues or in the open air and he would preach and he would teach. And that for many of these folks, this was... This was sort of a, a, a first glance at Jesus. A first introduction to the kingdom of God. You know, in our, our Sunday morning worship experience is a reflection of that. You know, when we have revival, and one day, one day, the time will come, and we will have revival again. Wednesday night is a reflection of this same sort of thing. And then last week we looked at Jesus' relationship with the 12 disciples. At these, at these 12 men that Jesus called and that entered into a, a deeper, more intimate, more personal relationship with Jesus. And we talked about the need for small groups. And we can call those small groups, small groups. We can call it Sunday school. We can call it home group. We can call it life group. There are any number of things that we could call them. But this need for, for a small number of people, and I, and I think 12 is probably, probably about right, 12 to 15, a small number of people that not only meet once a week, but that live together. Now, I'm not asking you to move in with each other. 
But I am asking you to live alongside each other. Man, when this is over, we are going to have a seafood boil at our house, and you are all invited. I am so ready to have people over to the house again. I'm so ready to break bread with people again. I'm so ready to live life alongside people again. And that's what Jesus had with the twelve. Was this day in and day out. They traveled together. They ate together. They stayed in homes together. Got to be careful how you phrase that. Because you could phrase it the wrong way. But today we're looking at this even deeper relationship that Jesus has. We've talked about his relationship with the crowd. We've talked about his relationship with the twelve. Today we're looking at his relationship with the three. So we're in the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be starting with the first book, first verse. This is the story of the transfiguration. So will you stand with me as we read God's word together? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He, Jesus, was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, Get up. Don't. Be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood what he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Dear God, as we continue this study in learning about how you made disciples when you were here and walked among us, God, I just pray that that we would study your word and that we would see its truths that you would stir up in us a desire for, for this intimate disciple relationship. God, as we continue worship this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So, so we start with this phrase, after six days. After six days. Okay, six days after what? 
When we read Scripture, you know, sometimes we, we start in a place and it, and it starts with something like this, and it's a reminder that we need to go back and figure out what came immediately before so that we've got some idea of the context, some idea of what's, what's happening here. So six days after what? What happened six days previously? Well, if we turn over to the end of chapter 16, what we see here is this, is that Jesus makes a prediction about his own death, that Peter denies that that will ever happen to Jesus, that Jesus rebukes Peter in some of the strongest possible terms, get behind me, Satan. And then Jesus follows that up with this this little discourse, this sort of mini-teaching about taking up your cross and following Jesus. And then Matthew gives us nothing until he starts after six days. Kind of got to wonder what those six days were like. I mean, can you imagine you're with somebody, he's your teacher, you're devoted to him, you're following him, and he tells you, A, he's going to die, and follows up with a statement of, I'm going to die with, oh, and by the way, if you are my follower, you are going to have to take up your cross, this instrument of torturous death, You're going to have to pick up yours and follow me, what, in death. I can imagine it was sort of an awkward six days. Can you you believe he said that thing about the cross? I mean, mean, should we tell somebody? Like, is he okay? But Jesus is, is, is telling them, right, in that statement, take up your cross and follow me. He's, he's telling them what a disciple is. A disciple is about imitating. Jesus takes up, takes up his cross, gleefully, gladly, takes up his cross and goes and suffers and dies for us. And then we complain if we can't get a decent parking spot. Or, you know, honey, I really would want to go to church this morning, but it's cold and rainy. We've got this idea that when Jesus tells us that that he's come to give us life and have it abundantly, that that means that there aren't going to be any, any hiccups, that there aren't going to be any, 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 any boulders in the middle of the road. But that's not what life is, is it? Life isn't always the mountaintop experience. Because you can't have mountaintops if you don't have, what? Valleys. You've got to have that... That space between the mountains. Otherwise, it's not a mountaintop. It's just a plateau and everything's the same. So six days after Jesus says to them, all right, I, I need you to imitate me in this. I need you to imitate me in, in, in this way. I need you to, to suffer. Because if you want to save your life, you've got to to lose it. So six days after that, we don't know what they're doing. 
All it says is that six days later, he, he takes three of the twelve. Which, which, if my basic rudimentary math is correct, it's about a fourth of the disciples. Yes, I can do basic division. You should be proud of me. But he takes, he takes three of them. He takes, he takes Peter, and he takes James, and he takes John. And they go up on the mountain. Now, who are, who are, these, who are these three? Who are, who are these three? Well, well, we know Peter, right? I mean, Peter's Peter. I'll remind you that when we say six days later, it was six days ago that Jesus looked Peter in the face and said, Get behind me, Satan. And now six days later, he's picking him out for this special trip up to the mountain. What's that about? Six days ago, Jesus, you said you call him Satan, and now you're, now you're calling him to go up on the mountain with you. Remember last week we talked about that argument they had about who would be first? Let's not do ourselves, let's not do ourselves any disservice. The, the, the disciples could be petty. They could be petty with each other. And I have to imagine that there were some who were like, man, six days ago you were yelling at him, calling him Satan, and now, now he's getting to go up on the mountain with you. What else do we know about Peter? We know that Peter's, that Peter's journey of, of messing up isn't over, right? Because what we know that Peter doesn't know at this point is that even after the experience that he's about to have, the time is going to come in which he says, I, know, I don't know who that guy is. Not once, not twice, but three times. And then even after that experience... And the restoration that Peter has post-resurrection, we know that Peter's the guy who, due to social pressure, decides that he's not going to sit with everybody in Galatia, that he's only going to sit with the cool kids. Peter's, Peter's story is one that should give you hope. Because it's a story of, man, the guy who just can't get it, but he keeps grinding So Peter. And then we have James and John, the brothers. The sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. These, these two. Now James we don't end up knowing, knowing a whole lot about. But John, John is the beloved disciple. John is the John who goes on to write the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the book of Revelation. John is the one that is the only one that does not abandon Jesus. He's the only one that we know was there at, at Jesus' crucifixion. And we know that because Jesus speaks to John and tells John to take care of his mama. John's also probably the youngest of the disciples. We don't know that for sure, but given how long we know John lives, that he was probably a teenager when he goes off with his brother and starts following Jesus. 
And so Jesus takes these three, and the four of them go up onto the high mountain. And see, the mountaintop, that's where we've seen Jesus go before, right? To spend time with God. That's where we've seen Jesus go before to to pray. And to build that relationship with the Father. And so, Jesus is inviting these three to accompany Him, to be a part of that. To show them what intimacy with the Father can look like. And then we get to sort of what we might think of as the transfiguration proper. The actual event of the transfiguration. It says that Jesus was transfigured in front of them and that, that His face shone like the sun and His clothes became white like white. White as light. I think I said it the other way around. And, and then Jesus is, is communing with Moses and Elijah. That Moses and Elijah show up and Jesus, Jesus is, is talking with them. Now we have to ask ourselves a question, and it's a question that we don't know the answer to. Is this normal? Because we know that Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray, but we don't have any other record of what that time of prayer looks like. This is the only time we have a record of that. So every time Jesus leaves the crowds behind and goes up on the mountain to pray, we've got to ask ourselves, is this what's happening? And the answer is, we don't know. But I have to think that what Jesus is doing, because Jesus is using this moment to disciple these three and to teach them something, that Jesus has to at least have some understanding that what he does when he goes up to the mountaintop is going to have a profound effect on these three disciples. And then Peter. How does Peter respond? So in some ways it looks like that Peter is being, being a good disciple, right? He says, hey, 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 here's the thing. I'm going to go and I'm going to make booths for you. I'm going to make these, they're these little little shelters that that they could sit under so they'd be protected from the sun and they could sit and chat and and we could spend all of our time here. And and in one way, it looks like Peter's being being sort of a a good disciple, right? Hey, 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 you stay right there, I'll, I'll go get you a chair. But what Peter's also doing is Peter's also saying, I don't want to leave this place and this time. I want to sit here and I want to bask in this forever. I don't want it to go away. So I'm going to make it as comfortable for you as it's possible. There's a a kind of selfishness here. 
Because if you're having this sort of intimate encounter with God, wouldn't, wouldn't your hope be, if, if, if you knew that your, that your spouse or your friend or, or your neighbor had had this sort of intimate encounter with God, wouldn't you want them to leave the mountaintop and come tell you about it? But Peter wants to stay there. He wants to stay on the mountaintop. I remember, man, we used to talk about this a lot. When I was, when I was a kid and I was in youth group, you'd always have that experience, right? You'd go to camp or you'd go to some retreat. You'd have some event and it would be this sort of big mountaintop event and you want to stay there. A couple of weeks ago, we asked this question, why? Why worship? And we got this amazing answer that it's about, it's about being refreshed and being filled up. The mountaintop experiences aren't for us to live in. The mountaintop experiences are to give us energy and vitality and to fill us up so that we can head back down into the valley and take some of that with us. But Peter, like so many of us, wants to stay up there. See, he, he thinks, and I want to be really clear here, I don't think Peter's intentionally being a bad guy. Peter thinks that he's serving Jesus. But serving Jesus isn't staying on the mountaintop Serving Jesus is taking the truth that you experience there and taking it down to the foot of the mountain and into the valleys of life. And then, and then it, it's really funny. If you read this and you read it carefully, God interrupts Peter. Man, how often do we wish that God would show up and interrupt ourselves? We say something. We start saying something really stupid. My life would be so much easier if every time I started to say something really stupid, God would show up and interrupt me. He doesn't do that. That's why he gave me Audrey. Hush. God shows up. He interrupts Peter, and he says something. He says something almost word for word that he had said previously, that he said back when Jesus was baptized. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if we go back and we read the account of Jesus' baptism in Matthew, in, in some of the other accounts of the baptism, it's not quite clear, but Matthew makes it pretty clear that it's just John the Baptist that sort of hears this and understands this. And so, and so God had spoken before, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And now, but now he sort of expands it out. And they've known that Jesus was the Messiah, but now they've, they've got it from God that Jesus is the son of God. But then, but then God adds something to the disciples that he didn't, he didn't say at Jesus' baptism. Listen to him. Listen to him. And what is the response of these three hand-picked disciples to this encounter with God? How do they respond? They fall on their face in terror. 
which I would offer is the appropriate response. Let me tell you, if, if you're ever somewhere and the cloud of God shows up and, the, and God's voice speaks from it, the appropriate response is to fall on your face in fear. Not only do I think that is the appropriate and the proper response, I really think that's the only response. You know, and sometimes I, even I play this game of, man, when I get to heaven, I've got so, so many questions to ask. But when we get to heaven, when we're in the presence of God, that presence is so overwhelming, that presence is so overpowering, that presence is so total that it will overwhelm and overcome anything else that is inside of us. They fall face first on the ground in fear. And the next thing that they experience is Jesus' touch. Note here that Jesus doesn't just say, don't be afraid, stand up. Jesus reaches down. Because let's think about it. If they're face down on the ground, Jesus isn't like standing up, touching them. Right? He's got he's to kneel down. Hey, Peter. It's okay. Get up. Don't be afraid. Prefigures Jesus kneeling before his disciples at the Last Supper to wash their feet. See, they, they've had this really powerful, overwhelming encounter with God that overwhelms them, that, that, that knocks them on their face. And Jesus is there to lift them up and to support them and to put them back together. And then there's this really interesting bit where Jesus tells them to, to not tell anyone until after the resurrection. Don't tell anybody what you've just seen. Wait until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's kind of a weird thing. I'm, I'm really struck. At some point I'm going to sit down and I'm going to do a really in-depth study of all of these times when Jesus tells someone not to tell people. You know what happens? He, he heals people and he says, don't, don't tell anybody. Here at the transfiguration, he says, don't, don't tell anybody. Not yet. See, Peter and James and John, they've experienced the full majesty of God. They've experienced this full power, this full presence. And they've, they've experienced in a way that the other folks haven't yet. They've seen Jesus for who he truly is. And the others haven't yet. But after the resurrection, that's how the others see him. As he truly is. See, it wasn't, it wasn't until 
the others could experience Jesus in that way that they could understand what had happened to Peter and James and John on that mountain. In fact, it probably wasn't even until after that had happened that they would believe them. Four of your friends go up a mountain. And then they come down, and three of them start babbling about how the other one, like, shone with light, and then God showed up. Are you inclined to believe them? Or are you inclined to believe, man, they must have eaten the wrong berries on top of the mountain? See, Jesus doesn't want to hide this. I mean, this story is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think it's really interesting. The one gospel writer that was present, John, doesn't tell us the story in his gospel. There's some folks who, who talk about that, that he sort of references it in his prologue. He doesn't tell the story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. So the story is told. They tell the story, but only after the resurrection. So as we look at this, what can we learn? What can we learn about how Jesus is discipling these three? What can we learn about Jesus' discipleship strategy? First, we can note that even within the twelve, there seem to be these three that he has a special relationship with. He, he's, he's, he teaches to the crowd, and he pours into the crowd, and then he calls the twelve, and in a special way he's pouring into the twelve, but then even out of the twelve, he calls these three, and he's pouring into them. He's inviting them in to these most intimate of moments in his own spiritual walk to pour into. You know, not every, not every aspect of discipleship can happen at every relationship level. There are things that can't get done in a sermon to the crowd that require a small group setting. And there are things even that happen in a small group setting of 12 that require even smaller settings. You know, the, the level of specificity and, and of Jesus' teaching increases at each of the levels. You know, everything that Jesus teaches to the three or to the twelve isn't given to the crowd yet. This is an example. The three are given this understanding of who Jesus is, and it's not given to the twelve or to the crowd yet. Now, nothing that he does in these smaller settings contradicts or contravenes in any way the things that he does in the larger settings. But there's, a, but there's a level of specificity, there's a level of detail that shows up as you sort of move down this chain into the smaller and smaller settings. It might show us that there are some things that it takes spiritual growth and preparation to be ready for. We're also reminded in this story um, 
that the, 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 the base relationship, the core relationship of all of Jesus' other relationships flowed from his relationship with the Father. He goes to the mountain to spend time with God, and, and here he, he invites those three with him. It's the same for us. All of the relationships that we have, whether it be a relationship with a spouse, with our child, with a neighbor, with a friend, with a member of our small group, with our co-workers, with our boss, if you are a believer, every relationship that you have should spring forth from your relationship with God. One of the things that we see is we see that there are these increasing levels of intimacy and vulnerability. Jesus is vulnerable with these three, with Peter, James, and John, in a way that He's not even vulnerable with the twelve. He allows them to see Him as He really, truly is. Even in a small group, having that level of openness, that level of vulnerability can be hard. You know, we we act like this is unusual, but we do this, right? Like, I'm going to guess that now, or at least certainly sometime in the past, you had a friend group that was a fairly substantial friend group, but you had two or three that you were especially close to. Right? Man, I'm still really good friends with the guys that were basically my year in college. There's a group of us, about 14, 15 of us. And we're still really close. We stay in touch. We talk, thanks to the phone, we talk just about every day. But there are two or three of those guys that I'm a lot closer to than the others. It's normal. Because it's in that that even smaller setting that we can be even more open and vulnerable. I would say that a a discipleship strategy and pathway, if we're going to be really focused on making disciples the way Jesus made disciples, is that we are going to have to have these sort of micro-groups. These groups of three and four. You know, this, these ways of building relationships and, and community, it's, it's natural. It's how we normally do it. It's almost like God designed it that way. In case my sarcasm wasn't clear, God designed it that way. You know, Jesus does this. This is, this is, this is a strategy. This is a method. This is a, a naturally occurring way of multiplying. You know, what would it look like if after you were prepared and ready and empowered, you invited two or three people into this sort of discipleship relationship? Because what sounds more, what sounds more welcoming to people? Hey, my preacher is preaching on X, Y, and Z this Sunday, and I would love if you would come. Or, hey, me and a couple of friends, includes Joe. You know Joe, right? Yeah. Joe from work? Yeah. We're getting together at my house. And we're going to eat, and then we're going to spend some time just talking about God and talking about life and what's going on. Which of those sounds more welcoming to you? 
Which of those sounds much more like something that, that you would be like, yeah, yeah, no, I, that's, that's something I'd be willing to participate in. I don't know, I don't know about you, the last one sounds better to me. Here's the secret that a lot of people don't like to tell. Preachers hate going to churches when we're not up front. Because we feel awkward. Man, I hated moving to a new town and going to church for the first time. A place where I didn't know anybody. All these people, they all know each other. You all know each other. You've lived together your whole lives. You know each other. You've got inside jokes. You've got inside, what's the opposite of joke? I don't know. The little petty things that you've been holding against each other for 40 years. And don't act like you don't have it because we've all got it. You, you're new to town. You come here. Man, that's intimidating to walk into the middle of that, isn't it? But to walk into somebody's home, somebody that you know, they've cooked a good meal or, you know, warmed up a mediocre meal, sit down with you at the table, man, how's life? What's going on? Let me tell you about God. Let's look at what God's doing for us. You know, relationships are, relationships are the key. Relationships are the key to all of this. And we moved into this thing a number of years ago in the church in which we sort of abandoned relationships and we sort of focused on programs and events. You know, if we, if, if, if we build the right program, they will come. If we have the best worship service, they will show up. Why do we do that? Because we know it's about relationship, right? We say it's about relationship. It's about relationship with Jesus. In our own lives, we know, we've experienced it. We've experienced it as relationship. So why do we still focus on programs and events? Two reasons. I think, first of all, they're a lot less scary for the people who are doing it. Man, it is a lot less scary to put on an event or host a program than it is to sit down with somebody and get vulnerable. It's a lot less scary to say, okay, we're going to have this gospel sing at church so people will come to than it is to sit down with a group of people and say, hey, man, let me tell you how I messed up this week. That's frightful. I can already see some of the panic in some of the eyes. But I think the other thing is, I think we get focused on building our kingdom and not focused on building the kingdom. I think we want to grow this church and not the kingdom of God. And let me be really, really clear. I think this statement could be made from the front of any congregation in the United States. I'm not calling Fairmont First Baptist out here. I'm calling the church as a whole out. We get focused on building our kingdom and not focused on being the kingdom. I'm going to say something, and this might be one of the most controversial things that you have ever heard me say. I do not care about growing this congregation. I don't. I don't care if not another person ever joins this congregation. What I care about is building the kingdom of God and coming to have people come to know Christ. If not another person ever joined this congregation and yet we reached this community and we saw the unreached number of people in this community come to 0%, that's a win. 
Because it's not about us. And it's not about this congregation. And it's not about this building. And it's not about how awesome I am or how good you are or what kind of programs we put on. It's about seeing people come to know Jesus. It's about growing in Christ-likeness and making disciples that make disciples. Now, let's be honest. I also believe that if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in terms of making disciples, that we will see this congregation and our other congregations in our community flourish and grow. But my goal isn't to pack this place out. My goal is to grow the kingdom of God. As, as COVID begins to lessen, as we begin to be more comfortable being around one another again, I'm going to start modeling this. Because I want to be really clear. I'm preaching to the choir. I'm not doing this. But I'm going to start modeling this. I'm going to start calling some groups together. So if you are one of the men in this church and you're interested in, in doing this, let me know. We'll, we'll spend 12 to 18 months together meeting about once a week. And, in the, and through that process, my hope is, is, that, is that you will be empowered and at the end of that 12 to 18 months, you'll go out and you'll call together two or three people. And you'll go through the same sort of thing, spend 12 or 18 months. And then, now let's think about it. If we're, if we're doing that, that's, that's what we call exponential growth. Or is it linear growth? Anyway, it's growth. I think it's exponential, right? I keep going, anyway. I was really bad at that stuff. Like I said, I can do division. We're good. But, but I want to see this. I want to see this, this happen. So if you're interested, I want you to let, if you're one of the men in the church, I want you to let me know. If you're one of the women in the church and you're interested in doing something like this with a group of women, let me know. Because I really believe that these sort of groups, to have the level of intimacy and the level of vulnerability that you need to have, they need to be men's groups and they need to be women's groups. But if you're a lady in the church and you want to do this, let me know and I'll come alongside you and I'll, I'll help you learn how to do this as I'm learning how to do this. Because I think that this is the, the next big thing for our congregation. Is to, to enter into this kind of relationship with one another. To grow spiritually in this way that Jesus has shown us. So be thinking about it. I don't need to know today. If you want to tell me today, fine, but you'll have to let me know later because unless I write it down, I'll forget it. But I want you to be thinking about what it would look like to come together with two or three other believers and spend a year really focusing on your relationship with Jesus. It'd be different after 12 or 18 months, wouldn't it? Yesterday, 
we had a baptism. Right here. Elena Kemp was baptized. Right up there. There's still water in the baptismal. Mainly because Ned told me that I wasn't allowed to drain it. The relationship that we start when we enter the waters of baptism doesn't end there. It continues. It's meant to continue and to grow. This is how we're going to help people continue and grow that relationship. So as we end today, there are two things. One is be thinking about what this would look like in your life over the next year or so. And the other thing is, if you are present today and you have never been baptized and you are ready to enter into a relationship with Jesus, there is water here what is preventing you from doing it. And if you want to come forward and say, I want to be baptized, I'll get wet. There's always water here. There's always the chance to start and grow your relationship with Jesus. Just like that eunuch asked on that road from Jerusalem to Gaza to Philip, what's preventing it from happening? Nothing. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, we give you thanks for this opportunity to grow. We give you thanks for the witness of your relationship with the disciples. We give you thanks for the for the chance to to grow in our relationship with you. And so, God, as we as a congregation, as we we begin to think about what it looks like to implement making disciples the way that you made disciples, God, I just pray that, that our congregation would pray about it and that people would pray as individuals and that you would lay it on, on people's hearts to, to, to do this, to grow in Christ-likeness, to be disciples that make disciples that make disciples. And God, I just pray if there's anybody present here this morning, whether they're, whether they're here in the sanctuary or whether they're joining us online, if there's anybody here who's ready to start that relationship with you, who's ready to grow in that relationship with you, that you would, that you would prompt them this morning to respond, that you would prompt them this morning to begin that journey and that walk with you. Amen. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 606. 